Gordon Ramsay is a famed multi-Michelin star chef, but he's also kind of a jerk. For those of you who don't know, he hosted a show called Kitchen Nightmares, where he'd go into a failing restaurant and turn it around with the owners, which of course sounds great, but it always involved two or three screaming tirades by Ramsay about the owners being complete idiots. Why are you doing better? Are you stupid? Open your f***ing eyes! Charitably, this was done, of course, to make for good television, and also it was done to shock the owners out of complacency and into action. After watching more episodes than I'd probably like to admit, you start to notice a really clear theme. Basically, all of the restaurant owners had endlessly complicated menus, didn't focus on customer value or satisfaction, and didn't really rally their team to be successful. Gordon would come in and simplify. He'd reprioritize and ultimately renovate, giving the owners newfound hope and a playbook for being successful. Although mostly not as volatile, the best product people that I have ever met or worked with are just like Gordon Ramsay. They're fiercely opinionated, but they're constantly also walking this tightrope between uncertainty and intense conviction. It's actually probably one of the most psychologically scarring jobs in tech because you need to make the complex seem simple. You need to gather ideas like a democracy, but make product choices like a dictator and do all of this while trying to be a mind reader of sometimes the most fickle customers. It's tough. And that's why I'm so excited to bring you today's interview with G2 Patel, who leads up product now at Cisco and previously, as well as when this interview was recorded, was the chief product officer over at Box. We were lucky enough to go deep on product with him, especially since he's balanced both scaling and making decisions amongst trade-offs with absolute grace and aplomb. Our interview and more are coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, G2 Patel sits down with us to dive deep on product principles. He tells us about using megatrends as a tailwind for growth, building product principles into your business, how to pick the right problems to solve the foundational pillars of building product, and the discomfort around decision-making trade-offs. Why do you think they, you know, because because there are other like a bunch of different products that don't necessarily do all the things that you guys do, but they do like the basic, you know, storage and, you know, the space has been very hot like the yeah. past couple of decades. Like, yeah. why did they think they go for you guys? Like, obviously you build for them, but why, wh what was that, hey, this is the crew that we're going to go after this enterprise, you know, style company? I think that there's a um, two basic aspects that actually got it going and now we've actually created a very distinct category that sits, that's very different from the things that are available in the market. But the two things, one of them was, you know, as people were moving, as SaaS was getting more popular, people were moving to the cloud, one of our kind of core principles was identify some of the megatrends and make sure that you use them as a tailwind in your business. Mm. So cloud was a big megatrend, mobile was a big megatrend, yeah. now you're seeing AI as a big megatrend. And as those, you know, kind of trends were taking off, uh, large customers knew that their content eventually was going to move to the cloud, but they were very concerned about security, data protection, privacy of data, compliance around the data for highly regulated companies. And so that was an area that they, um, uh, we invested millions of dollars in making sure that we actually got sorted, uh, you know, sorted out pretty early in the game. And so that was um, one, one reason they came to us. But the second one was there's a bunch of companies that actually help with that, but they don't also simultaneously provide and get obsessed about a delightful user experience and making sure that you're easy to use and it's collaborative and you can make sure that you uh, 
take away the boundaries where you can share share content with people both inside and outside the organization and you can automate your workflows in a lightweight way and all of those pieces that weren't actually uh, available as a combination. Those two are very distinctly different set of companies that did that. And so if you were a company that said, I want to move my content to the cloud, I want to make sure that I have a SaaS provider that I'm using, and I don't want to be nervous about the fact that you know they're going to look at my data because this is intellectual property that I have, and I want to make sure that I can protect it effectively. We got into that, that wave pretty early on. And uh, now, you know, if you think about it, there were two distinct markets um, that we then created a very distinct third market for. So one of them was there was this enterprise file sync and share, which is a consumer market that started off. Uh, and then the second one was enterprise content management systems, like my previous employer, Documentum, you know, OpenText, all of those companies. What we are now doing is distinctly something that is um, a combination of those two in a very different way that's built, you know, kind of purpose-built for the cloud and is literally has a 10x value proposition that's better than this. So, for example, our security is at a very different level than what any of those companies provide. We allow for extended enterprise workflows and sharing. So like you don't have to have boundaries of your own employee base be the constraining factor. Yeah. We have a best of breed ecosystem that we think about. So we're not we're tying into 1400 different applications so that there's a fluid way that data can get exchanged but also happens securely. So if you happen to be in Salesforce and you want to look at a piece of content in Box, you don't have to leave Salesforce to do it. You can do it right from within your Salesforce experience. If you want to do that with Office 365 or Google Docs or Apple iWork or Slack or Facebook at Workplace or NetSuite or Workday, like we work with all of these vendors. So, you know, those are the kind of things that really made us very unique in the business model that we constructed, which was then built for, you know, kind of um, the masses. So it was priced in such a way it was, you know, millions of users using it. There are customers where you might have like you know 10 or 15 million users within that customer that might use it for um, uh, the extended enterprise for their for their customers. Yeah. So over time, that just created a lot of gravity and snowball effect. Do you think? Because it can get really complicated, especially your the content game, right? Yeah. Because you're talking about you know, the file I have on my computer, you're talking about, well, I want to share that file here, like you just said, and, you know, Box, it's almost as if, you know, the security compliance aspect is a huge piece, and then, as you just described, it's almost like making Box disappear, you know, exactly. in the sense of, like, exactly. it's just like, you know, it permeates through everything else. Like, how do you manage that? Like, just as a product leader? Because that's that's so hard when you're dealing with enterprise. Because the classic enterprise is, like, death by a thousand paper cuts. Like I yeah. need this SLA, I need this certification, I need that and this. And then you're saying, hey, I want to do this delightful experience. Well, those sometimes, you know, butt heads, you know, because of the different... And I think the trade-offs, it's really yeah. important that when you build product and have, you know, like we have over 600 people that are in our R&D org. So like you have to make sure that you're coordinating with all these folks and making sure that the system is running at enterprise grade and is always up. But And we, we haven't had... A maintenance downtime window in 13 years. Holy cow! Right? Like it's been. We just don't yeah, yeah, yeah. bring our system down for maintenance. Like it's it's, it's all always um, kind of gets updated. So that those are the kind of things that are important to have a set of product principles. That how, how do we operate as a company, and how does that actually get completely embedded into everyone's ethos? So for example, we're very obsessed about data privacy, and uh, you know. Um, highly encourage tech being regulated and the more kind of regulated industries we feel aren't being served as effectively with tech companies all the time and we need to make sure that we're actually keeping them in mind as we're building product. 
Um, so that's a core product value or product principle that we have. How we, you know, keeping our product insanely fucking simple as we build, build this out is, is something that we sweat a lot about. And if that means that at times we won't build a feature because it's not, the friction is too high, then we'll just hold off and build on the feature because we haven't found quite the right way to build it. We don't at all underestimate the power of neutrality in working with everyone. And as a result, deeply partner with people on most things and only build the things that we think we can add a unique perspective that no, the world would be different if we didn't build it. Yeah. Those are the only things that we choose to try to build rather than building anything and everything and just jamming the feature in. Yeah. So those are kind of core product principles that you have to kind of bake into the business. Otherwise, what ends up happening is as you give a lot of autonomy to teams, you can start to see them make different decisions, which might all be good decisions from their vantage point, but don't actually go build the company that you want to build. Yeah. And so what we do is we create a lot of autonomy by having these two pizza teams that have a lot of you know, atomic behavior um, uh, instilled. However, they then follow a certain set of guidelines and principles that we actually drive from the top. So they like, you know, build something that's 10x better than what's already in the market or don't bother because sure. you know, just doing something that's 20% better, chances are people aren't gonna bother moving over to you. So yeah. why, why would you spend precious dollars? That's so interesting, right? Because there's there's a lot of this market that's very commoditized almost, right? It really and is. And a lot of the market that's commoditized and there's a lot of the market where, which has not been automated because of the complexity of certain systems. So I'll give you an example. Like we're building our automations engine and next generation workflow product right now. And the market that we're going after is not to go feature compare with all the workflow vendors that are in the market. It's like there's 80% of the workflows in most companies that have not been automated because they've been far too complicated to automate. They're a combination of some repetitive tasks with some collaborative action that needs to happen as well. And we're squarely saying that is the market we need to go after because no one's serving the market. So one of the things you have to internalize is don't build a product just to make money. Build a product because that's a need that's not being met effectively enough that we can meet the need of that actually solves a problem that's meaningful enough. You know? yeah. And I think that, that just takes constant questioning and making sure that the strategic... So we have a lot of debates on our product team on is this the right thing to do or not do? And then we'll have... You know, it might seem academic at the time. Sometimes people get frustrated. But yeah. I think it's important to have those debates. One of the things we talk about is every feature you build creates debt. So make sure you build the features that create the least amount of debt and the highest amount of value because when that debt to value ratio starts to go out and get lopsided, that's when you actually start to see a company um, hemorrhage. Do you debate on product teams? Like I've never heard of that, right? <laughs> exactly. So when you, when you think about you know, not building things that you can't be 10x or partnering on things that you're not going to have as your core, when has that failed before on features? I'm sure you've had some features where they, you know, oh, we shouldn't have done that, we should have done that. Like, has there ever been a mismatch? Um, we have. That you can share publicly? Or, uh, you know? Yeah, they, we have tons of areas where, you know, the first time around, the way that we thought about something. Like, here's the thing that happens. The one thing that we tend to be very obsessive of is the most important thing that a product person can do is pick the right problem to solve. And you have to pick... The quality of the problem has to be a very high quality problem, which, and it's very counterintuitive because the harder the problem, the higher the likelihood of success of the outcome, which is very counterintuitive. Most people think, like, I'm going to pick an easy problem so I can succeed at it. The reality is the harder the problem, the better people get attracted to that problem. And as a result, when you solve it, you're going to actually experience more success. So we tend to be 
uh, we've gotten that piece down where we tend to identify the problem pretty well, and there's enough checks and balances in the system that allow us to do that. What we tend to do sometimes, though, is sometimes you might listen too much to a customer or listen too little to a customer. And what you're asking a customer can be wrong sometimes, as new people come in and all that. So you might ask a customer, what feature do you think I should build? That's the wrong kind of question to ask. You should be asking, what problem are you facing? And then it's our job to figure out what the configuration of the solution needs to look like. In a lot of areas, it's more deliberation that we face than like, you know, um, blatantly, you know, like we've had, so far we've been pretty lucky where there's not been that many things that have been completely, that have gone sideways, but like we'll be very deliberate about certain things. So I'll give you an example. There was this capability around uh, information rights management. Uh, that's kind of basically where you're saying to someone, when you send a document to someone else, how do you still make sure that you can maintain privacy and control on the document? And the challenge with that market is it's only penetrated like one or 2% of the user base. Like no one uses it because there's so much friction. Why? Because the way in which they go out and integrate with the, um, with the authoring applications, they intercept the file save as action. So they say, okay, when I'm doing a file save as, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna make sure that I take over control. And so every single time an office application gets updated, you have to hack the system. What we said we'd do is say, okay, so you gotta solve this problem from a first principle standpoint. What do people not wanna do? Well, people don't wanna have that data leak. Well, how do you make sure that data doesn't leak? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to provide a world-class experience of consumption in your system. So the first thing we did, which was completely counterintuitive, we didn't build a security product for going out and solving this. We built a high-end viewer, which could view 120 file types with high fidelity in our system. So now that you have the viewer, 95% of the people's problems get solved by just having a high fidelity viewer. Then you can say, for these class of documents that we're gonna classify as top secret documents, don't allow for that to be downloaded. And make sure there's a watermark on it. And you solved the problem in a very different way than the way that the market had solved the problem. And you did it at scale. You didn't only solve the problem for office documents, you solved it for any document. And so that, those are the kind of things that are strategic decisions where you have to really think about like what does the market fail to deliver rather than just going out and doing it 20% better. That's not gonna get you from 2% adoption to 80%. So fascinating too, because you you know you've been in some very large product orgs. You know now you have a pretty large product org. These kind of um, you know foundational like pillars of like building product that you kind of mentioned. What do you think about like the practicality and the execution? Right. So like it starts with hiring, like hiring the right people who kind of you know have these concepts like in their hands and like understand them and are, are you know stubborn and good debate and all that kind of fun stuff. But how do you make sure that from an execution standpoint, like you're living up to like that standard that you guys have set? I think you have to start with the people that are aligned to your core values from a hiring standpoint. It, it all, it's eventually we're a people business and software, right? So it's all based on like, there's disproportionate leverage mm -hmm. that people bring to the overall value equation. You have a great product manager and a great set of engineers you'll have a very different outcome than you have a mediocre product manager with mediocre engineers. It's just like, and every team tends to be different. Yeah. And you typically place bets on teams. I always tell our team that like, I mean, if, if you will always feel constrained on resources, because the alternative of not feeling constrained on resources means that you're completely constrained on vision. You don't have a vision enough to go out and expend the resources. So you'll always feel constrained. So that's a good signal. But make sure that you've actually thought through clearly what the most important thing to do is on that dimension. I think it's in hiring, and the way that we at least, uh, this is my personal view, I find that the kind of people you hire, there's two qualities that are the most important in my mind. Like, of course, you're gonna need to have 
you know, the technical know-how and the intellect and all of those pieces. But the, the two most important qualities I feel are hunger and curiosity. Like, are you really, do you have a fire in your belly and do you want to go out? And I, I place a disproportionate emphasis. I would rather get someone who is a couple notches down on intellect that's super hungry because you know what? They will get themselves smart enough in that area if they're hungry enough. Yeah. And people who always ask questions and are curious for the sake. They're not asking questions to disrupt, but they're asking the right questions at the right time because they're truly trying to understand the root cause of the problem. I think those tend to make great product people. How do you test for that? Um, like obviously there's history and referrals. Hunger is pretty so. easy because like, you know, questions like, what do you want to do in life? Is a great interview question to ask. And there's no right or wrong answer, but like, you know, the, the clarity of thinking on that can tell you a lot about what, the, what motivates this person. And it's not a matter of like, they're going to give you a right answer or a wrong answer. It's a matter of like, is that intrinsic motivation something that I can give them a platform to flourish in? Or is it just going to be that this is the wrong place for that person to come to? Now, I, I truly believe like most people in the right jobs can do amazing things. They just have, don't all find the right jobs. So, and then the second one that you look at is just the quality of questions that they ask you. Like, you know, the most important part of an interview is when you say, do you have any questions I can answer? And what's the quality questions they ask you about the business, about yourself, about everything else? It tells you a lot about the person. Yeah. And then it's eventually, you know, after all the scientific treatment you'd put to this, I'm right about half the times. <laughs> and you yeah. kind of improvise from there. Yeah. You always have to, I mean, firing sucks, but you also have to make sure if you make a miss. miss or or maybe they, we put them in the wrong job. And we yeah. put them in the right job and then they flourish. Yeah. But, you know, we started off with them in the wrong job because their skills didn't match what was needed for that job. So. Yeah. Why product? Why, you know, why the fascination with kind of putting together this, you know, such a hard thing to do? And I know your background's in enterprise software and things like that, but even before then, like, why this? Why do you think you're here? You know, like, the way I... I uh, at least thought about this for myself is what problems do I want to spend my life um, thinking about that when I look back I can say I have an eight-year-old daughter and I am I'm a very mediocre dad you know and I don't spend enough time with her and like there are times when she like daddy come play with me and I'll actually you know like I'm doing a much better job than that but there's there are times when you just make a lot of sacrifices on your time at least make the sacrifices on your time for some, something that you can t go back and tell her it was worth it later. And so do some things which are kind of worth it in the long run that change the shape of how, you know, like your impact should be greater than what your ability to make a certain amount of money during a certain constrained time period is. So when I thought about that, like, what, what's the thing that can drive the most amount of impact? Typically in tech, which is I think the most interesting sector to be in right now, the origination of the value starts from product. Right? And the uh, completion of the value depends on the decisions you make in product. Like literally a one degree change over here changes the destination from like, you know, yeah. Australia to Japan or to, um, uh, to, to Brazil. Like it's like a, it's a massive change of overall execution. So that seemed like a very interesting, you know, kind of place to participate and put your brain cycles in. And it's actually so far proven to be, be by far the most intellectually stimulating. Like I've, I've been CEO before, and um, you know I've um, I've I've run all all functions of the business. This is by far the most humbling process to go through because you're running a lot by influence, but like if you don't do it right, literally there's a ripple effect that you're the only one to be blamed for. Like yeah. it's you and the CEO. Like literally, you built the wrong thing, 
and as a result, people can sell it. My niece, similar story. She, when she was first started walking around, um, she wasn't quite like fully verbal yet, but she would go up to the TV and try to swipe the TV. Swipe the TV. Yeah, yeah. and it was just, it was like, it was just amazing to see because yeah. like, it's very like, you know, intuitive. Like you can understand why that's happening, totally. but like it just boggles your mind that that is happening. Exactly. So yeah. that's super cool. Uh, we have a little segment on giving more context to some of the things you posted. This is why I was referencing oh, your LinkedIn. Jeez, right. um, I don't remember what I posted. That's right, this was a week ago. So two big lessons in product management teaches you, don't think of trade-offs as an annoying burden. Instead, know your life gets infin infinitely better once you deeply understand the mastering art of assessing trade-offs, and your greatest creations will always be perpetually and per permanently incomplete. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, these are pretty, pretty self-explanatory, self but they're pretty deep there, yeah. Yeah, I think the trade-off thing, I mean, there was, we were um, going through our end-of-the-year planning and what do we do in our roadmap, and like the, the decisions that are easy don't come on my desk. Those get made. People are pretty smart, right? And the decisions that you have to make are, you know, the, the two really good things and which one are you going to pick and which one are you going to hold off on. And that kind of level of discomfort around trade-offs, once you start getting over that hump and say, oh, these are just, trade-offs is just a part of life in everything we do. I can either spend my 30 minutes talking to you right now or I can go out and spend it doing something else and it's always a trade-off in every single thing we do and if we just understand that those trade-offs, if they can be made very consciously and explicitly yeah. and that you know that that's just, getting really good at that is what gets you successful in life. Fighting that doesn't. So that was that concept and the second one is the constant improvement is a very product-related property in product management that you can apply to everything in life. Like literally. Like, how many things in life do you not want to get better at as time goes on? You know, yeah. like, you just want to make sure you keep improving, and those are the areas where you actually find a lot of fulfillment in the areas that you improve. Now, focus on areas to improve that you're really interested in, yeah. but, you know, like, if you constantly keep improving, that just makes it, makes life more fun to live. You got some depth, man. You're a deep <laughs> guy. Now, this is good. I got one more for you. Yeah. So this was someone, it wasn't your tweet, someone just tweeted this from your Saster talk. Oh. Quote, pick the problem that's near and dear to the customer's heart. That's what you said. And quote, spend money on, the, on scale like it's going out of style, unquote. When do you get to that phase? They didn't actually quote me correctly there. Okay. So um, <laughs> what we, we were talking about over there is there's three distinct phases of a product. You want, one, you get to product market fit. Two, you get to repeatable selling motion. And three, you get to scale. People prematurely start spending money on scale in phase one. And it's completely a waste of money. Yeah. Get to product market fit. Really make sure that your problem, product solves a problem in a repeatable way so that people are buying the same thing from you over and over again because that's what makes you better. Once you've figured those two things out, then spend money on scale. Don't spend it before that. And then, then when you're spending it, spend as much as you can so you can get to as much market share as possible in the most compressed amount of time. Yeah. Do you worry about, I mean, you, you obviously guys worry about this on some level, but do you worry about what's happening with like some of your competitors just in terms of like them also spending just tons of money on these spaces? We worry about losing the plot by thinking too much about our competitors and not thinking and being grounded too much on the core value that you have to create that's intrinsic for the customer as a result of solving a really important problem yeah. that we think we can do uniquely. When you lose that plot, that's when you know you have to worry about stuff. We've had very capable competitors and that just ups your game. Yes, we worry about competitors all the time. It's not fucking easy competing with Microsoft. Like, it's, yeah. it's never fun. And Satya is like not like he's doing a bad job. It's easier with some competitors, harder with some competitors. But we absolutely worry about that. But I don't, I think it's much more fruitful to worry about 
thinking about the customer and the value and working backwards rather than thinking about what the competitor is doing. Now, what I do think is important with the competitors, you have to know what they're doing and you have to make sure that whatever you build is creating asymmetry. When you build something that is distinctly different, that in and of itself has a base level of value that can be associated to it. Don't build something that's marginally better. Build something that's meaningfully different because that meaningfully different will associate a premium with it in the customer's mind. Massive shout out to G2 Patel for lending his time to the podcast. With his help, we now have what we need to be a killer product leader. Today, we talked about using megatrends as a tailwind for growth, building product principles into our businesses, how to pick the right problems to solve, the foundational pillars of building product, and the discomfort around decision-making trade-offs. Oh, and if you want some swag, all you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent wherever you listen or watch and email a screenshot to pc at profitable.com and we'll make sure to hook you up. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Profitable Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.